This is the Open to Alchemy podcast, and I'm your host, Lauren Ivey. I'm so excited to have you here joining these conscious conversations about the transformation that's possible for all of us. My approach to spirituality has always been part woo and part work. So in this podcast, we talk about all the incredible spiritual modalities and add in a bunch of practical things that really make it fit into our lives. I can't wait for you to join me. Hey everyone, welcome to the Open to Alchemy podcast. I am so excited that you are here with me today and my guest, Olivia Krishnaswamy, who is a poet, a writer, and a mystic. And I'm so excited for you to meet her. We have so many cool things that we have on the docket to talk about, but who knows where the conversation will lead. So welcome, Olivia. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Lauren. Yeah. Um, I would love to just dive in and start with how, how you've gotten to this place where you feel confident calling yourself a poet, a writer, and a mystic, because I think that's just amazing. And it's funny, I've had, you know, so many interviews and the question of what title you're using is always like a little bit of an interesting place for people in our our line of work. Completely. It's funny that you asked that because I this is brand new, these titles. <laughs> um, I have not called myself any of these things. I've been a writer my whole life in a way. Um, that's something that has come naturally, but that I haven't really highlighted in a professional way until the last several months. So it's brand new. I have a, a newsletter I've started that includes poetry and the title of poet is one that definitely feels like a jump because I'm only starting to sh publicly share poems in the last two months. <laughs> so I'm stepping into these titles and that's a beautiful thing as well um, to be able to claim something even as it's it's a, it's a seed and we get to we get to step into new versions of ourselves constantly so this is the result of a lot of growth in the last year it's been um it's been one of the most transformative periods of my life so i'm excited to i'm sure talk about that more <laughs> Yeah, I love that you share that. And I feel that resonates with me and I know the audience so deeply because there is this sort of, you know, evolution, this transformation that comes where we feel maybe some parts of ourselves are ready for like this, this public offering or this sort of coming out with something that we've been working on. And I think something like your Instagram bio or what you identify yourself as, you know, professionally is both a small and enormous step for that, that transformation for that sort of stepping into the next version of yourself. And I love that, you know, sometimes it, it's in baby steps and sometimes we're like, yeah, I'm just going to call myself this and I'm just going to it's like a new way of being you 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 really do start to embody what that what that looks like what that feels like if i am now identifying myself as a poet or i've been playing with this idea for myself as empowerment coach slash cosmic cheerleader what does that mean what energy do i bring to that and i imagine for you who is someone who is so intimately um, acquainted with words, that there is a lot more that goes into that than even I can express. That's a really good point. I love the idea of archetypes and stepping into archetypal energies. And I think there is really a lot of power in that. And on the other side of things, we don't want to claim things from an inauthentic place. Hmm. And that's something I see a lot in the spiritual world is people who may not be embodying a certain energy and claim the title in a way almost as a as an illusion um it's not it's not maybe it's okay if it's something you're moving into but um i do see some times when it feels like someone is claiming something that isn't actually their truth 
and it creates a dissonance. And um, so I think there's a balance between really moving into an aspirational energy that is true to who you are and claiming something because maybe you think you should, or because maybe you think that's what your audience wants, that's not actually true to you. Mm, yeah, that makes so much sense. And also, I think that we might try on things and sort of feel through it. Maybe this is the right thing, or maybe that's the right thing. And it's funny, in my last episode, I'll tag it in the show notes, we also talk about with my guest Nyla about labels and identities that we sort of take on. But I think what we're talking about with the archetypes is definitely a different energy. So could you talk a little bit more about what that is for people who are not familiar with that sort of, you know, archetype as um, a modality or as, you know, a way of sort of living and being? Um, absolutely. Yeah. I, I think about archetypes as they're these sort of subconscious themes that are common throughout the human experience. So you see them come up in myths, you know, since, since things were getting written down, <laughs> um, cave drawings or um, just repeated in pop culture as well. And um, so there are these sort of these themes of versions of, of energies in a way. Um, and so for example, so I have the uh, Kim Cran's archetypes deck. Do you, are you familiar? No, no, I'm really new to the whole archetype sort of doing the deep dive and the understanding behind it. And, and when I read about it, it does make so much sense. But for me, I feel like there's openness in my design, which makes me try to want to figure it out and like fit myself in a box. So I have to be careful with that, that I'm not creating stress, stress or drama for myself. And, and, you know, I think that's true about all of the spiritual modalities, like take what resonates, take what feels easy and what works for you. You don't really have to try to fit the square peg in the round hole if it's not just flowing well. So that is my experience with archetypes that sometimes it comes in and it really makes sense. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I can totally see that I'm, I'm playing this role, but I really want to be this or that this is the part of, you know, my journey that I'm on. And other times I'm like, I don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, it is one of those things like, where's the line between an archetype and a stereotype or right. a box, like you're saying. And I think the usefulness that I find is when I feel stuck in an old pattern, maybe of behavior, and I want a fresh energy, like you said, trying things on, you can try on, what would it be like if I approached this as a poet or as a mystic or an artist or a caregiver? Um, so the deck, the Kim Kranz, I, I love Kim Kranz's decks. She has several of them. And actually the newest one is an alchemy related deck, which Ooh, you would be interested yeah. in. Yeah. <laughs> I'll have to check yeah. that out. Yeah. But I have her archetypes deck here. I can, I can draw a card if you're curious to hear. Yeah. Should we do yeah, it? Yeah. That would be so fun. Definitely. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to draw a card for the archetype for this call. Let's okay. do that. Oh, that's so fun. Yeah. Okay. All right. Interesting. So we got the underworld, which is a little bit different than sometimes the classic archetypal, um, sort of the classic archetype of a certain person like Venus or um, the poet. Uh, so this, so Kim Kranz includes some themes that aren't necessarily a person that you would think of. But the underworld, let me read the description. Her descriptions are really beautiful. She does a lot of research and really brings in interesting themes and extra, you know, dive deeper, go read this. And it's, it's pretty cool. Oh, so the underworld, cool. the nightmare, the ordeal, the bottom. 
This is no time to mince words. The archetypal territory of the underworld is fraught with nightmares, suffering, and pain. Well, that's fun. (laughs) (laughs) Yay! (laughs) It is the darkest shadow realm, which we try to vigilantly avoid or deny at any cost. Try as we might, the darkness pulls us into its depths through disturbing dream images, unexpected accidents, illness, war, conflict, and ultimately death. Not visiting the underworld or denying its existence altogether is what gives it dangerous power. Traversing it forces us to bow humbly to the greater forces that be while summoning the inner strength we previously underestimated. Take solace that the underworld subsumes everyone from time to time, making us deeper friends, more intimate partners, soldiers of light amid our shadowy times. Facing darkness and choosing light is the most profound calling of all. Wow. Yeah. That is so powerful. And I think that that speaks to a lot of the things that we want to talk about on this call, which was, you know, the the fears that we have, the hesitations, sort of like these like underlying limiting beliefs that sort of come up and get in our way in everything from what we're calling ourselves to how we are actually physically mentally emotionally showing up in the world so that's so powerful it is and it resonates with me in terms of my story as well um which is interesting in terms of this is how i started what i'm doing now is is through this process of digging into the underworld it has been uh through a lot of pain and um, mistakes and hardship that I've ended up where I am. And it's it's not just a story of underworld, right? It's a story of, like she was saying, bringing the light through, um, finding, like going, you dive into the very depths and come up with a jewel of um, what you have to offer the world. That's That's been my process, at least. Mm, yes. And I understand why people avoid going deeper. It's, it's like you, you have to sort of know a little bit what you're getting into. And we don't always have the energy or the um, spiritual capacity, in my opinion, to handle that, that load. And I don't, and it doesn't mean spiritual bypassing, and it doesn't mean avoiding it forever. But I think it's also okay when we say this is, I'm going to put a pin in this. I know this is a place that I have to return to. I know that ultimately, there is work that needs to be done in this area. But based on what I have going on in the rest of the, the rest of my human life, I, I can't tackle this right now. And, you know, then committing to get back to that. And sometimes we don't have a choice because it's just like in your face and there's no way of going around it. You just have to get through it. I completely agree with that. It's what you're talking about to me sounds like discernment and (laughs) yeah, knowing when, when you have capacity for something and there's a reason our systems are designed to keep us safe, our, our psyche and, a lot of the things that came up in the last couple of years for me are things that were years in the making and I thought I was okay. <laughs> I was doing fine. And that's because my um, my brain was protecting me from things it wasn't ready to look at. And like you said, that's completely okay. Um, what it took for me to do this deep dive into the underworld, so to speak, was actually my first six-day silent meditation retreat. Wow. Oh my gosh. Tell me everything about that. I've done a one-day silent retreat and it was life-changing. I cannot even imagine at six days, the downloads, the complete and utter connections and everything. So how did that go? It was, it was a really, I mean, it was one of the most transformative things I've done for sure. Um, I went into it having a background with spirituality, not, not really in a specific modality, but trying all kinds of things and, you know, meditating to different YouTube video, like YouTube tracks and, um, Reiki and all these different modalities. Um, and so I'd had some spiritual experiences and went into the retreat 
wanting that, wanting to sit down and, you know, feel bliss or experience some sort of extrasensory <laughs> perception of some kind. And what I faced was six days of dullness <laughs> and agitation. Mm. And it was challenging. But on the other end of it, the retreat didn't end on the sixth day when I went home, it continued to work on me. And so one of the lessons in that process was, first of all, don't go into a retreat expecting a particular experience. You won't have that experience that I had. You'll have a completely different experience. Every single time you do it, it's different. But when you go in like, okay, I want to have a certain type of experience, you're probably not going to get that. <laughs> right. Because what needs to happen is probably not the thing that you think needs to happen. But what happened for me after that retreat was just, I think the process of sitting in that kind of muck, that is, that was the beginning of the underworld process for me really. And it didn't feel, it wasn't horrible the whole time. Like I was just suffering the, every minute of it. There were some lighter times and some neutral times but what happened after that was I, I started working with a Zen teacher every week. Um, and about a month later, I actually I think it was two weeks later, I reached out to a therapist and started doing therapy. So that, that retreat, something happened and I won't pretend to be able to put my finger on what all the layers of what happens when you sit in silent retreat but one of the things that came out of that was being ready to do that work and that process kicked me off in the last year I've actually spent about 30 days in silent retreat that's incredible I mean I feel like sometimes it's hard to get a quiet moment let alone have a day that you're able to do that or six days. And I think, you know, one of the things that I see so often, and I'm sure you do too, is people just, the, the silence is so scary. That inner voice tapping into that, allowing that to sort of bubble up is so uncomfortable for people because we haven't in many ways been taught how to hear and cultivate an inner relationship. It's so external, it's so outward facing that given a spare moment of time, people are looking to fill that. Even waiting online, even you know, sitting in the doctor's office, even being in any space where there's just like a 30 seconds, a minute of a gap rather than taking that moment just to do nothing, just to breathe, just to look around, just to find your place and space in time. It's an external filling of that time and space. And I think that it really does shut off that connection to intuition, to that connection to, to source energy or spirituality or whatever it is. And so I can only imagine, you know, based on my one day experience, how that was amplified and, and reconnected after six days, that stream really <laughs> exploded into a waterfall, which led to exactly what you needed. And I really appreciate what you're saying is that you might go in with a certain expectation to any of these things. And the only thing that you can be sure of is that whatever is supposed to happen is going to happen. And you have zero control over what that is. Completely. It's a very mysterious process in a way. I mean, the, the people leading retreats have a lot of experience with sitting retreats and they know a lot about how people's minds work and how to help gently or sometimes not so gently, but how to help guide people <laughs> through the natural our minds are kind of boring in a way. They all do the same things mm. in Zen. We talk about something called the inner critic, maybe other, other modalities talk about that too, but 
pretty much everyone has this voice in their head that's like, oh, you're not doing this right, or you should be working harder, you should be a better parent, uh, whatever version of criticisms you have about yourself. um, That's very, very common. I don't know that there's any human who doesn't have that. Mm -hmm. So things like that, you know, having an awareness of how the mind works, and I'm still learning, I'm not a teacher, I'm exploring my own mind and discovering those patterns within me. But bringing it back to the archetypes, that is why I think a lot of these subconscious themes are very common because while we all have very different backgrounds and experiences and things that shape us, we also have a lot of common needs and desires. And, you know, across the board, across the world, across the political divide, every, a lot of people have really core needs and similar criticism voices in their head. So there's some commonality there. Right. And in addition to what's coming from us innately, there's also the programming that we have plugged into that we've sort of assigned ourselves this this role or this archetypal journey and that's where we were talking about earlier you know when you're getting when you feel stuck in a pattern or stuck in this mental loop that maybe that's time to explore that that archetype or that belief is no longer serving you and you're ready to move beyond and I love um, Byron Katie for that work about you know, you, you either agree with what your mind says, or you don't agree with what your mind says, where is, is it true? Or is it untrue? And I think that when we take that quiet, reflective space, we can pretty easily see that almost nothing in my case, that my mind says is true is actually true. So much of it is exactly what you're saying built to keep me safe, built to keep me in this little cocoon or, you know, to not put myself out there or the imposter syndrome or the inner critic or whatever it is that keeps the the program that keeps running on us and to be aware of that so that you can make a different next thought or have a different course of action or just sort of bringing that to the forefront so that you can see it more from that outside perspective and not be so in it that you can't see the story that you're living. I completely agree. And that is in a lot of ways, really key to what I'm working on right now. And the idea of peeling away the layers that we add onto our experience that are not helpful. Mm. And, and to me, that has a lot to do with the question of purpose and what we're doing in our life. So looking at the ways that we get tossed around by things we think we should do or things we took on as challenges 10 years ago that actually don't make sense anymore, but we're so attached to that Um, and looking more closely at what we really are being called to in, in a given moment. And so that's a lot of what I'm writing about is how do we peel those layers? And that's what the, my, practice my spiritual practice is about with zen as well is looking through i mean it's an ongoing process because we'll always have more to look at there there's the beautiful thing about spiritual practice is you can have something that you experience and it's true and it's real and then a year later, you can revisit that. And there's another layer of depth you had no idea was there. And that's also true and real. And Mm. that process, in my opinion, is infinite. And so for me, purpose is a daily creative process. (laughs) Um, And it's one that also involves going into those underworld spaces when you're ready, when you have capacity and, and diving into your own depths to find really if there is a nugget to bring to the surface. So do you think based on your self-study and your connection process that we each have sort of an underlying purpose in this lifetime and it's something that we can 
access and, and get to and sort of start to live out? It's a beautiful question because in my opinion, there's no way to actually know the answer. <laughs> Which is why a million, everybody wants to know what their purpose is. <laughs> right. It's so my experience with the question of purpose came from during college feeling really unsure of what I what I wanted to do and adding so much anxiety. I was in the era when everyone was highlighting how you should have your passion is the most important. Find your passion, do what you're passionate about. And there was a lot of pressure I felt in that to have a single answer. It's it's my career and I'm passionate about it and it's my purpose and all of these things are the same thing. And I found that to actually be stifling and create like close off possibilities because it put my mind in a perspective that there's only one thing. And if I'm not doing that, then I'm not as good for some reason. I'm not as spiritual. Or I'm not as, I'm just I'm wandering around and for people who have multiple interests and <laughs> things they want to explore, that's a lot of pressure and it's not always useful in my, in my opinion. So it may be that there is some purpose we come to earth to fulfill, but the most important thing in my perspective is, is it useful? What does, what happens when you believe that? Does it help you feel more focused and does it inspire you? Then that's great. Focus on that. Does it make you feel bad about yourself because you don't feel like you're living that way and you feel like you'll maybe never live that way so you must be broken? Then it's not helpful. <laughs> mm, yeah, no, totally. I I completely agree with you. And I think it's one of those failure paradigm that we can set up for ourselves that there's this one mighty purpose and we have to find it we have to connect with it we have to live into it and yes if people listening who know that we I talk about human design if you're a manifesting generator which means that you are that sort of energy hummingbird and you do you are multi-passionate and you have lots of different things that you love it can feel like there's a different purpose every other week that you feel connected to. And I do think this idea of one, one main thing for some people is very limiting, is, does create this, this idea of, well, I'm not doing that, so I am failing versus for some people, I think it is more clear. I think it is more cut and dry. I think there are people who are born and they they just tap into it and that is their journey. And I think that's the, one of the dangers in looking around, you know, so intently and seeing what other people are doing, because I think that we can all be purpose driven and passion driven, but that might show up in different ways for different people. And one of the things that I do love about human design is that when we talk about purpose, which is found in your incarnation cross, and I can link to that in the show notes, that it's something that as you line up these sort of these decisions, as you find the flow, as you find the ease, it unfolds for you in a way that may be completely unexpected. And it's not something that you just hit the pavement, like today, I'm going to go find my purpose. It's sort of, it shows up for you as you evolve, which I think is a beautiful way of looking at it. And I'm still frustrated looking for my purpose. So I don't know. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, completely. Yeah, there was a really powerful exercise that I did with my Zen teacher. Um, and it comes out of a book called The Vow Powered Life that I, I recommend. The exercise is to think about having, so imagine you have five years to live. And if you have five years, what do you do to contribute to the world? You don't have the rest of your life. And it's not just one year where 
you're mostly focused on saying your goodbyes and making peace with your own life, you have enough time to really do something. Um, and the process of thinking about that for me is what led me into the work I'm doing now. So I, I was surprised at my answer because I thought it would be starting a nonprofit or volunteering, which are amazing things to do. But the answer that came through when I really looked at it was to share my story about the things I've been through and the lessons I've learned, because I'm sure there are other people who have been through similar journeys who maybe haven't had that moment yet where they realize, oh, I could really benefit from therapy <laughs> or, oh, there's a lot more going on here than I realize. And I can approach my life in a way that's really different than I am now. You know, a lot of the patterns I had in my life, behavior patterns, I thought were my personality. And I learned through therapy that they were actually trauma responses. Mm. And when you realize that it's, it's like opening up the curtains in a way, because there's, there, are, there are more options. There are ways you can experience your life and even something as simple as how do I respond when my partner makes me upset? <laughs> in the past, you know, you might respond in one way and maybe it's reactive and a larger response than the situation warranted. So maybe things feel really big when if you actually can see that that's a triggered trauma response and not actually because your partner did something that's really earth-shatteringly horrible, <laughs> it gives a lot more room to, to stop for a second and say, okay, I'm feeling really activated. I need a minute. I'm going to go regulate my nervous system. Let's continue this conversation in 10 minutes. <laughs> that's that's life-changing in a lot of ways. Oh my gosh. Yes. I, um, I talked about this on a previous podcast and hopefully I'll link it, but I once explained the story talking about trauma response that I once started hysterical crying. And I say once it was like, I think earlier this year or like at the end of last year over a discussion with my husband about getting rid of scissors which of course, from the outside perspective is like, okay, this is it. This is like, she's really lost it. And I dug into it. And of course it wasn't a very deep dive because I knew exactly what it was, but, you know, growing up and experiencing loss of a house and, and the trauma of, you know, going through a hurricane and having all of my stuff gone, it just brought up that I don't want to get rid of this. Like, this makes me happy. This makes me feel safe. And you're making me get rid of things that I don't want to has nothing to do with the fact that we're trying to organize the office clearly. But I love that you're sharing that because I do think that those, those responses that feel out of, out of character, out of proportion to what somebody from a more unbiased perspective might might view the situation are perfect opportunities to look and say why why am i behaving this way or why is this why does this type of behavior always trigger the same reaction from me and it's not the other person it's something that i need to look at internally completely and of course, there's a balance because on the other end of things, we do want to make sure we're responding appropriately if someone is doing something that's harmful. And, right, and, right. and so there's that balance. But knowing your own reactions and responses, if you think about it, I don't know the statistics. It would be interesting to look this up, but so many people in the world have different levels of trauma. Some of them are more sort of what you would think of when you think of the word trauma. And some of them are really subtle or slow over time, slow build. Um, you know, people who live, who live with different forms of oppression, there's a lot of trauma that just mm -hmm. gets repeated over and over. Um, and our world is made up of people who are 
doing exactly what you're talking about. And what I'm talking about is we're interacting with each other, but we're not just interacting with the person in front of us. We're interacting with all of our history and all of our challenges. And we do project things on people constantly. (laughs) And so if you think about, for example, social change work, which is something I, I talk about and have dabbled in (laughs) for lack of a better word. Um, People are coming into activist spaces, for example, with so much trauma. And that's a part of the story that I'm not sure gets talked about as much as it could um, because there's so much to say there. So I don't even know where to dive in at this moment, but what I want to communicate is that you have choices as we become more aware of the process of how we react and whether it's proportionate to the situation, we have more choice in how we respond because when you don't realize that that's what's happening, you just feel rage or (laughs) huge emotions. Right. And also, so from it, when it's from us going out or also if we're on the receiving end of that to understand that we are all walking around at different levels of hurt and mm-hmm. pain and suffering. And some of it is that big T trauma. Some of it is that little T. Some of it is just an ongoing, exactly what you're saying that just sort of slow builds. And so it's almost like we don't realize at the time that something is wrong because it's just like, you know, death by a thousand cuts, if you would, that all of a sudden, wow, this is not what everybody experiences. This is not how everybody views things, or this is not what has shaped other people's experience the way that it's has, you know, shaped mine. And so when something happens to you, when you're on the receiving end of it, to also take that, take that breath and, and know that, okay, was this something that I provoked by something I said that was hurtful or insensitive or whatever, and or what can I do to hold space for this person who is clearly upset about something whether or not I had any part in that or not. So not taking on their energy, not trying to fix it, not trying to make everything right for somebody when, when you clearly can't. And also honoring that that person is experiencing something very real, very heavy. And how do we navigate that? Yeah. And the the caution, it's all a balance. All mm-hmm. of these things are true. And the caution as well with empathetic people who I can tell you are, probably a lot of your listeners are, is we can, if we focus too much on, oh, is this an appropriate reaction? There's also the potential for some people to use that in a sort of a gaslighting way. So, mm-hmm. oh, but do you really, is this really appropriate or you're being dramatic or. Um, right, or trying so. to take this feeling away. That's mm-hmm. something that I notice that happens very often. And I'm sure that I'm guilty of it too, is somebody experiences something, they express it. And because it makes other people uncomfortable, whether it's because it's something they've experienced and they don't wanna deal with it, or because just the emotion of somebody else being upset makes them feel out of control, people try to wash it away, minimize it. Oh, I'm sure they didn't mean that or everything will be fine. Mm -hmm. Whatever sort of verbiage people use and what that's doing is it's solving their need to be away from the issue. That's not truly responding to the other person's need to communicate or get support or talk it out. And I think that that happens so often and we assume we're helping. Oh, Mm -hmm. I'm going to take this away by minimizing it or by just placating or, oh, it's going to be fine. Or you probably made that up or that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter in the scheme of things. And it's like, well, but it does matter to the person who's expressing it to you. So why are we trying to, to, you know, push it under the rug for them? That's not helpful, right? Mm Mm-hmm. 
Completely. And that's why with spiritual practice, I think it's really important to balance it with therapy or shadow work or looking at the hard stuff because that's so rampant in spiritual communities is just manifested away <laughs> and love and light. And um, you, you, you need, you need some doses of that because just being in the underworld in the shadows is a lot, but to just, to just do focus on the bright and happy things, that's not a full existence. Right. And it's, it's not real. It's not true. You're actually, you are experiencing all of the challenges as well. You're just, they're in a different part of your experience. It's sort of dampened down, but it's not gone. It's, or it's maybe it's a back level anxiety, but it's there. Right. Mm. Uh, or it will come so back. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's so interesting that you say that. So even when we feel like we've got a handle, I put a handle on things in quotes, that doesn't mean that we're necessarily aware of or addressing all the things that there still could be not the darkness, but the choppy waters that we're experiencing and to always sort of keep your eye on that so that it doesn't come and overwhelm you at a future point. Yeah, in a way. And I think there's something that I'm learning through Zen practice, which has to do with it being okay either way. Mm. So I actually, if you're okay with it, I have a short poem I could read. Um, oh would that my be... gosh, I would be so honored. Yes, okay. I was definitely wanted to circle back to how this all comes through in your writing. So I love this. Yes. Yeah, I think this will hit on what I'm trying to communicate better than me trying to explain it. Okay, so the poem is called I Am Not Centered. I am not centered. I'm more like Jackson Pollock and Pablo Picasso made a mural together, and that mural had a baby with Van Gogh's missing ear. I'm not centered. More like a potted pothos in a dark room straining for sunbeams that leak through a gap in the velvety curtains. I'm not centered. More like the sun's sloppy explosions burning out and reigniting in perpetuity. I'm not centered. More like the wind playing tag with butterflies, laughing its way up the Eiffel Tower and tickling anyone with hair worn loose around the shoulders. I'm not centered. More like a sphere with infinite diameter whose edges both exist and don't and within whom no single point could possibly be the center. I'm not centered. Thank God for that. That's so beautiful. Your imagery is so powerful. Yeah, it feels feels like I need a deep breath. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> I started to get emotional. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, to me it's really about I think the confusion comes when people say everything's okay because everything's good. <laughs> and that's where you create actually dissonance with reality because what you're experiencing might be a challenging emotion or a situation that's not good <laughs> and you're just saying oh it's fine it'll work out you're you're actually creating you know you're bypassing or you're creating almost a lie for your for yourself and so this poem to me is about acceptance that I am okay because I'm not centered and or and I'm not centered mm -hmm. I want to read a, just one stanza follow-up poem, which is, I haven't actually published it as the time at the time of this conversation, but it'll be out by the time the podcast comes out. <laughs> so, this is fun. Um, so this is the, the follow-up. It's the next post is how to find your center. So, okay. So we're not centered. And also, okay, I'm just going to read the little poem and here we go this one is called centered life and death a sphere with infinite diameter 
whose edges both exist and don't, and within whom every single point is the center. Mm. So the idea is, if you think about a sphere that's infinite, in one way, no matter where you go within that sphere, so the first poem is saying any points in that sphere can't be the only center because every point within the sphere is the center. Mm -hmm. If you have infinity in every direction, no matter where you are in the circle, it's right. the center. And I think this relates to this concept of can I feel my center even when I'm at this point way over here and it's hard? And when I'm at this point over here and it's amazing and easy, can I realize that I'm in the center either way? Mm -hmm. So that's the invitation. And I hope it's useful. <laughs> I mean, so much so. And the other thing that's coming in is how impermanent everything is and that at any given point, you can look and be in the center. And so where you are now, well, first of all, I'm not even getting into the multiverse and the infinite <laughs> timelines and how it's all happening at the same time. But I always find that so useful that grounding in the place that I am allows me more than anything to know it's temporary. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Because I think when we're in our mind and it's just racing and we're spiraling and I'm going to feel this way forever and nothing's ever going to be good again and nothing's ever going to work out and we get into these just these spaces where we can't see beyond the space that we are coming back into our present moment reminds us that we didn't feel that way a little bit ago. And so therefore we probably aren't going to feel that way a little bit from now, even in the major, major, you know, cataclysmic things that we can experience in this lifetime that we all will experience in this lifetime, that it just keeps going around. That can be very helpful to remember and it can be a life raft when you're really in a rut to think yeah. to think of it that way there's another way to look at it as well which is can you find okayness can you find completeness in this challenge and there's a paradox i've experienced as well with healing that has to do with the process of going in and not trying to change, but being present with and accepting and feeling, really feeling, when you do that, something transforms. Mm -hmm. so when we try to fight our experience and our emotions and our situation, it creates tension. We're tight tightening up, we're, we're bracing, we're avoiding or um, against. And this is so much easier said than done. I'm working on it every day but when you move into a space of acceptance and feeling things do change in a really different way than when you're trying to wrestle them and it's yeah yeah oh absolutely it's like as soon as you name the thing as soon as you verbalize it or write it down it 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 changes, it changes shape, it changes weight, it changes, to me, it changes everything. And I think, you know, that's part of the process for me of the self-awareness leads to the release, the opening of that bottle that tells me this is wrong, this is bad, this isn't working, I'm not, I'm, I'm not good, I've, I'm broken, I'm damaged that as soon as you're able to say those things, it changes the power that it has over you in any given situation. And you are able to 
release it from that very tight space in which it feels like it's controlling you. Absolutely. We've talked about a lot of heavy things. The underworld did not disappoint on this archetype conversation. <laughs> I love it. And, and with it, the light. So I would love to hear more about how people can work with you and connect with all that you are offering the world and sharing your very incredible experience and stories. Thank you. So people can find me on Substack and if you're not familiar with Substack, it's a platform for newsletters for writing and you can sign up to get, you can get emails from your favorite authors. A lot of prominent authors are actually on there directly writing to their audiences, which is pretty cool. Um, so you can find me on that platform. That's the best place. And you can either sign up for emails or just get the app and read it in your sort of blog newsfeed. <laughs> um, so the website for my work for the poetry and other writing is www.wovendeep.substack.com. So Woven Deep is the name of this project that is evolving and that's where you can find me. I love that. And I'm so glad that you brought up Substack because that is something that I've been exploring and have just not yet had the bandwidth to dive into, but I love that you potentially are introducing a lot of people in my listening community to that as a way to access, like you said, both like super famous, prominent people and also so many new voices. And so I will definitely link to that for people who are like, ooh, a new way to access people and explore. So thank you so much for sharing that and for being with us today. Thank you. This has been so lovely, Lauren. Thank you all so much for listening to the Open to Alchemy podcast. You can find more about me on all the social places, Instagram, Facebook, Clubhouse, at open.to.alchemy. That's open, the word T-O, alchemy, or at my website, opentoalchemy.com. See you next time.